We were being threatened by outside forces. We were losing ranches left and right. And we kind of started running with, how can we help these farmers and ranchers stay viable? And how can we keep the community going? We've got all kinds of partners sitting at the table at these meetings now. And it's like, wow, look what we're bringing to the table and look at what's going on here. I think that's been the biggest success in getting this going and keeping it going is ranchers leading ranchers. I think other ranchers coming in, you know, they might be a little skeptical about what we're doing, but if we can show them, we have a, a greater success. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what's needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series Life in the Land in their entirety, and I'm your host, Laura Tomov. This episode is a visit that we had to central Montana in September of 2022 in Phillips County, about 40 minutes south of Malta and about 30 minutes north of the Missouri River at the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge. We're on the Walsh Ranch, owned and operated by Bud and Sheila Walsh. We're on the edge of the Fort Belknap Reservation, home to the Ioni, or Grovant, and Nakoda, or Assiniboine Nations. Bud Walsh is a Grovant tribal member and grew up right here on this land. Their ranch lies within the vast open prairies at the base of low, pine-covered mountains. This region is part of the Northern Great Plains, which is one of the last largely intact temperate grasslands in the world. Many elements are dependent on the health of these grasslands. They provide key wildlife corridors for pronghorn, elk, deer, migratory birds, insects, lichens, the list of dependent biodiversity goes on. These grasslands also are key for regional watersheds and soil water retention, and is one of the largest natural sinks to pull down atmospheric carbon in the world. The health of this region's landscape supports communities that are largely centered around agriculture. And in this region, that's primarily cattle ranching. These folks take great pride in producing quality food for the world in ways that can also steward the land. The towns are tight-knit and residents are tough and hardworking. This region has evolved for at least the last 12,000 years with the presence and interaction of humans. Several Plains tribes interacted with and stewarded all elements of the land, water, and wildlife here for thousands of years. In the last 150 years, cattle ranching has been prominent. In those earlier years, the newcomers trying their hand at livestock or farming here struggled with the harsh growing conditions and their own practices of working on these landscapes. While many left in the 1930s, some stayed and others came in, all learning how to better interact with and steward the land here. Grasslands are disappearing at a higher rate than any other ecosystem on the planet, which has terrible impacts on biodiversity, watershed health, which for this region that watershed health impacts water in human communities from Canada all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and therefore beyond. The disappearance of or deterioration of grasslands also has a negative impact on the amount of carbon sequestration that it can support and on the human communities who call this place home. Grasslands are disappearing due to a variety of elements, 
residential, urban, and mining development, intensive farming, basically because grasslands have for too long been undervalued, and rather than being seen as critical, complex ecosystems rich with biodiversity, have been seen as just open space to be converted and developed. One of the main strongholds that's keeping these remaining grasslands intact is the presence of ranchers. With low profit margins, rising land values, and increasing droughts and fickle agricultural markets, more and more family-owned ranch operations are being forced to sell, and fewer new generations are able or willing to get in. What does it mean when a rancher is pressured to sell? First of all, it strips away a family of their home, place, and livelihood. It deteriorates local communities and puts that land at risk of many potential options of fragmentation and deterioration. It also puts greater demands on less sustainable food sources or opens the door to more industrialized agriculture operations. The link between the vitality of rural communities, local ranchers, and the health of a landscape are interconnected to one another. You can hear more about this in our episodes with Laura Nolan, a rancher in Winnet, Bill Milton, a rancher in Roundup, and episodes from the Big Hole Valley. Well, here in central Montana, there are several partnerships being formed, many non-traditional and previously unexpected, which Bud and Sheila Walsh are involved in and will be speaking to today. To put it nicely and vaguely, the world of ranching landowners and conservation nonprofits or government agencies have not always had histories of working well together. But Bud and Sheila Walsh will share with us how these partnerships can be done with established trust, communication, and when the needs and knowledge of the ranchers on the ground are truly listened to and respected. Bud and Sheila will share with us about being involved with the Nature Conservancy's Matador Ranch Grass Bank and the Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, which is a locally-led organization that's making incredible positive impact on local communities, economies, and ecosystem health. Bud also speaks to his involvement with the Agricultural Committee for the Island Mountain Development Group, which is an indigenous-led entity working to create self-sustaining economies and opportunities for members of the Iani and Nakoda Nations. This is a great episode for ranchers, folks in conservation, community development, or great insight for those who think their lives may not relate to those of ranchers at all, because I'm sure in some way you'll find that it does. Bud and Sheila share relatable insight on building trust and the value in listening, learning together, creating opportunities for the next generation, and encouraging local residents to be involved with the decision-making of what happens in their place. And just a technical comment, we were outside in these conversations on an extremely windy day, so I apologize for how that impacts some of the audio. We begin by hearing from Sheila Walsh about what she appreciates and connects to in this landscape. This is just an awesome area. I love the mountains, but I don't like living in the mountains, so I'm close enough to the mountains that I can go there and I can, on hot days, you can smell the pine trees, and I, I love the smell of those pine trees, but... In the mornings, you can wake up and look across the prairie and see the sunrises and, and the storms brewing and all that stuff. So you get the best of both worlds right here. Got the mountains and the prairie where they connect and what more can you ask for? And now we hear from Bud Walsh, a Grovant or Irani tribal member, about his connection to this place. My grandmother squatted here in the early 1900s 
and then the reservation uh, being allotted in 1924 uh, she said she wanted to be allotted here so she was a grove on allotted here and then all the surrounding neighbors were Assiniboine. My family has been here for quite a time and my grandmother she had five children uh, that grew up here and my dad was the one that became the rancher and then after I got out of the army I came here from college. So I've been a part of agriculture since I was a kid I grew up here. Then I became a part of the Matador Grass Bank when it first started in 2002. The Nature Conservancy purchased the Matador Ranch and evolved their grass bank program there in 2002 to provide accessible grazing for area ranchers and to encourage practices that benefit the entirety of the ecosystem. Many ranch operations rely on grazing lands outside of their home ranches to graze their cattle. Often, this is on Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, or Forest Service lands. The Nature Conservancy offers area ranchers discounts to graze their cattle on the Matador Ranch. They offer this discounted grazing in exchange for the ranchers enacting wildlife-friendly practices back on their own home operations. This includes practices such as no breaking of new ground, enacting a grazing plan that allows pastures to rest, protecting prairie dog towns, or modifying fences to make them safer for wildlife. The Nature Conservancy also provides resources to ranchers for things such as fencing materials and things for more efficient water development. The grass bank allows ranchers to broaden their land stewardship without impacting their already slim profit margins. And this program has already conserved more than 350,000 acres of critical grassland habitat. The Matador Ranch has also become a center for scientific research on grassland conservation. Bud and Sheila Walsh are one of about 18 ranches who are participating members of the Matador Ranch. Their home ranch also happens to border the Matador Ranch for a few miles. Nature Conservancy has been a very good neighbor. That's been one of the better things that have happened to Phillips County. The Nature Conservancy makes a grazing plan and then we just follow that. It's a timed grazing system is what I like to call it. And then they allowed the grazing members to make the health protocol for the livestock. We started out with about six members and now I think there's about 18 different members. Uh, some of the producers bring cows and calves and some of them bring just yearlings. Some of the producers bring both. That has helped us communicate with each other and we learn from each other. Some of the producers are real good with plants and soil and some of the producers are better with the livestock handling. So we learn from each other that way. What I see with the grass bank is the connections that the people make with each other like Bud alluded to that they come here and they, they do their work and then they'll sit around for three or four hours afterwards or maybe even longer because they enjoy each other. They learn from each other and they pick up different things and they learn about other parts of the community. A lot of the guys come 60, more, 60 miles or more to even get here. So where they live is different than the area here. And you'll hear them comment about that. And they'll, they'll call Bud and say, well, what's the weather like over there today since we're coming? 
is it raining or snowing or is the sun shining because where we're at it's different and they seem to all get along really well and it's like everything everybody has their differences of opinion but in the end they try to work for the common good of the grass bank and it's worked great. We now hear from the Matadors ranch manager Charlie Messerly on the benefits he sees of the grass bank not only to the ecosystem but in being a catalyst to connect area ranchers. These guys would most likely never work together. Uh, They're scattered out over 100 miles, but they've come over here. They've learned to talk with their neighbors and work together with their neighbors, and and it's built stronger relationships in the community. I've had several of them say this is the best thing that has happened to the community. It's learning to get along and share ideas. And people have learned and watched that happen here and they've figured out that we can work together at home and make that same thing happen on multiple ranches in the neighborhood. If that concept will continue to grow, I think it's gonna benefit large landscapes. It's so hard to survive these days in this business that if you're not willing to work together, you'll all go away. Bud speaks to how the Matador is trying to create access for next generation ranchers who can often feel like breaking into the ranching business these days is inaccessible. The Nature Conservancy has recognized that there needs to be room made for the younger ranchers. I'm one of the few members of the grass bank that have given up some of my AUMs for the younger producers. Here's ranch manager Charlie Messerly speaking to this program. We have young grass bank members that are currently don't hold any land or own any land, but are working on trying to purchase property. So we let those folks come in and graze and get a cow herd paid for, so they got collateral to buy property. Our older generation of ranchers, if they don't have kids coming back or coming up to take the ranch, they have opportunities to watch these young guys and think about ways to possibly transfer or sell to them. Both Bud and Sheila give credit to the reason that the Nature Conservancy and the Matador Ranch has been successful is because as an organization, they've built relationships and trust with area producers, listening to them and allowing them to lead on a lot of decision-making. Bud and Sheila say that a lot of this is due to the approach of the program manager, Brian Martin, who is the Nature Conservancy's Grassland Conservation Director. We've had four or five different managers since I've been part of the grazing association. You know, that's kind of normal, too, because people come and go. The head guy is uh, often here to make sure that if we need anything, you know, that we can get that as far as fencing and water development. It's, It's very important in management if you have the ability to listen, you know. The guy that's in charge that comes here, Brian Martin with the TNC, I, he, he is a great listener and a great facilitator. Um, he hears everybody's concerns and takes them into account when different things have to be made. And that's the c- collaboration and conservation, working towards the conservation of the matador and, and learning what they're doing over there. You can bring back to your own ranches and You just learn those types of things from being around a lot of different people and throwing out ideas and looking for new ways to meet challenges and drought years. And TNC has had different 
symposiums over here, science symposiums, where they brought in a lot of college graduate, undergraduate students and things and, and different uh, students that are working on PhDs and, and doing different research projects. They're doing that over there on the Nature Conservancy and trying to better what's going on or figure out what how their impact is on the wildlife and the birds and the grasses. And they have these symposiums where all the ranchers from around here can come and you learn a lot as to what those undergraduate students are doing and is some of that stuff they're doing and finding out going to impact what you're doing on your ranch and will it make you think about changing something on your ranch that might benefit the birds that are here or or the beavers or or the grasses. You take what you like and you leave the rest. Um, we don't always agree with some of the things they find out, <laughs> but that's normal. So in those respects, I mean, you, it, it's been a good learning challenge. The Matador Grass Bank is a 60,000 acre ranch that was a sheep ranch. In the early or the late 60s, uh, when the sheep herder went away, then the, the people that owned the Matador figured that, you know, they had to use a fencing system so they developed a fencing system, and we still use that system in our grazing plan, you know. Uh, several different pastures, I would say maybe 20 different pastures, and we rotate through those pastures during the year. With the exception of this drought, we don't use a pasture at the same time of year for another 10 years, you know. So that's been uh, a good benefit for the for the soil and the plants. For those in ranching, you likely already know about this concept of timed grazing, rotational grazing, or sometimes called regenerative grazing. Of course, ranchers have always typically had some type of grazing plan, but there is more categorized science and buzz about the benefits to more formal rotational grazing in the last few decades. In a way, it's somewhat mimicking the movement of bison whose presence was a key component in healthy grassland ecosystems for thousands of years. Bison would not stay in one spot and eat out the resource. They would migrate and allow grasslands to rest and rejuvenate. They would eat the forage, allowing for new growth to come through. Then their droppings would fertilize the soil. The way their hooves moved across the land would also aerate the soil and push those fertilizing nutrients down. If managed properly, Cattle can create some of that disturbance to create that necessary nutrient cycle for grasslands. Bud goes on to mention that as a grass bank member, they're required to practice some sort of grazing plan also on their home operations that allows pastures to rest and other conservation efforts, which he says has been a big benefit to their home ranches. They pay us for our uh, prairie dog towns and uh, also the sage hen leks and they give us a, a dollar discount for running in common. By running in common, I mean all the different owners are in, in one pasture at a time, you know. Each of us don't get our own separate pasture for the... And that was something that we didn't quite understand when we first started, but we, it wasn't too long that we realized that my cattle could run with somebody else's cattle. So communications, you know, it's just one of the bigger things that I've learned in the last 
15 or 20 years, you know, that you can accomplish more by communications. Then I have also invited uh, tribal councilmen to come to our science symposium in June, you know, and we didn't have a science symposium this year. Uh, and a couple of the councilmen called me and wanted to know if they could come again, you know, and, you know, the reservation is the bordering neighbor of the Matador uh, Ranch, so it's uh, just common for us to to try to be good neighbors, you know. And one of the things that the Nature Conservancy did for me, as well as the reservation, they uh, gave me the material to refence two miles of the border fence that's between me and the Nature Conservancy, you know. I did the labor and they uh, provided the material. So that was a benefit for both of us. And then our grazing rates are very reasonable. Uh, they start out at about $26. By the time you get all your discounts, they're down to about $16. So in comparison to other areas, it's the cheap, cheapest grazing that I have. That's been a benefit to um, most of the members that are in the grass bank. Bud speaks to the concept of wildlife-friendly fencing. One of the things that the Nature Conservancy incentivizes and provides resources for to allow for the safe migration and movement of the pronghorn, elk, deer, and occasional moose, as well as other species like sage grouse, to move across the prairies as they need to for their own survival. You know, I have some what's called wildlife friendly fence. You know, we use a smooth wire on the bottom, and then the top wire has got a bigger space. So if a deer uh, jumps over the fence, then they don't get their leg caught in the top 12 inches if it's spaced right, you know. Our cattle are healthier in today's world by some of the things we do, so we don't need the kind of fences that were maybe needed uh, 50 years ago. And here's ranch manager Charlie Messerly. We've been able to show the effects of changing fence to the local ranchers. They get somewhat concerned of if we're not having enough fence, but with proper management and grazing, it doesn't take much of a fence to hold cattle. I ask Sheila what it is about this partnership of NGO and private landowners that makes it so successful. I think the success that the Matador Grass Bank has here with the ranchers is that process of having someone from the Nature Conservancy that really listens to what they want, what they want to see happen at the Matador Grass Bank and their own ranches. And I think Brian Martin is an integral part of that because he does listen and he, he doesn't come in here and say, this is what we're doing, you don't have a choice. Either come here and do what we're gonna do or not. And you know, they have meetings a couple times a year and um, they meet throughout the summer months when they're grazing cattle here at least once a month, I guess, and talk about what's going on over there. The cattle moves, is this the right time to move them now or do we need to go earlier because of the drought? Um, you know, he listens to all of that and they sit down and formulate what's going to happen for the coming year or the coming month. Um, so it, I think that collaboration and that listening to the grassroots people that are here and the ranchers that know what's going on 
on their ranches on a daily basis and the ones that are riding through the matador on a weekly basis checking cattle and looking at the water holes and doctoring the sick animals if there are any um, they're the ones that are seeing what's going on on the landscape and the health of the cattle and that and I think that having Brian listen to that and and know that these guys know what they're talking about um, and and I think they have a lot of respect for him for that you know they there is a collaboration there with the ranchers and him and, and the rest of the crew over here. There's the ranch manager that's over here, Charlie Messerly, and the rest of the crew. I mean, they all have to work together, and they all do work together. Um, you know, they're calling Bud or somebody on the grass bank probably weekly and going, well, have you been out there in the pasture and looked around, or what do you think? What do you think's going on? Is there enough water? You know, I, I know what the water is, but what do you think the water's like? Um, so... So it, it's, a, it's a give and take. And here's Matador Ranch Manager Charlie Messerly. This area is the third largest intact grasslands in the world. Many species of birds and wildlife and insects and, and just the biodiversity of the ground, the grass, the carbon sequestering that's happening in this landscape is absolutely critical. And, and keeping this rangeland intact grazing it is is a very important part of the ecosystem today's grazing is different than it was a few hundred years ago but if everybody works together and does good management we can keep this land healthy for hundreds of more years we now move on to speak with sheila about the rancher stewardship alliance or rsa in the 80s and 90s the significance of this region's ecosystem drew heightened attention from conservation groups and government agencies. Proposed land use regulations threatened the economic viability of ranching operations. For example, regulations due to this being habitat for the threatened black-footed ferret, and many other proposed conservation efforts. In 2003, a group of about 30 ranchers in the area came together to determine their own fate in guiding land stewardship, rather than being dictated by conservation NGOs or government agency. That group became an official nonprofit organization, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance. Bud and Sheila have been members of the RSA since its early days, and Sheila previously served as the organization's secretary. She begins by talking about the early days of the organization. They just kind of worked along uh, trying to educate people on the different things in the landscape, on conservation, that type of thing. And uh, I joined in, uh, I guess, nine years ago. They were looking for a secretary. It was pretty much a grassroots organization at that point, and everybody was trying to learn the ropes of a nonprofit. And of course, being a secretary, then you have to be uh, on the board of directors. So right away, I was, so to speak, thrown to the wolves. and. <laughs> that time we did not have any staff members. It was all volunteer. The board is all volunteer basis. Nobody gets paid. We wanted to help the ranchers, help the beginning ranchers. We kind of started running with, you know, how can we better educate people? How can we help these farmers and ranchers stay viable? And how can we keep the community going? Because we were being threatened by outside forces that 
We were losing ranches left and right. And how do we keep the other ones here? We were a hub for people to come to, to learn and, and grow and stuff. And, and we started talking to some of the biologists and the other government organizations, you know, how can we get everybody on board to help these ranches stay, stay sustainable? And, you know, that in turn helps our community be viable and, and still be here 100 years from now. RSA is now a staffed organization which works to strengthen local community and rancher vitality, as well as the health of the ecosystem that they're a part of. They do this through education, outreach, and carrying out physical work and programs that help rancher viability and landscape health. A huge value that they create is being a hub or a conduit that brings together dozens of entities to help them carry out their mission. RSA is based upon partnerships and collaboration with dozens of entities agriculture organizations, conservation groups, government agencies. In recognizing the holistic benefits of keeping ranchers sustainable and therefore able to utilize the best land management practices, several conservation interests have come to the table to support the ranchers in their own viability. Through these partnerships, the Rancher Stewardship Alliance is able to provide resources and outreach for ranchers to improve the profitability of their operations and the health of the landscape benefiting both ecological and social vitality of the region. A few members came from like uh, the Nature Conservancy and uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Montana Partners Program, uh, Pheasants Forever, uh, BLM, uh, Fish, Wildlife and Parks we had. And they kind of, you know, sometimes came to our meetings, sometimes they didn't. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Montana Partners Program was really instrumental in the beginning of our conservation work uh, with RSA. And in 2007, we actually formed a conservation committee, um, which we hadn't had before. And uh, Marissa Sather out of uh, Glasgow was sitting at one of those meetings and she said, you know, I think we could do a lot on the landscape here to help the ranchers if we could apply for this grant through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. We said, okay, well, what, what's that going to look like? And so, you know, many meetings are sitting there saying, well, this is what we want to do, and these are the criteria that the Fish and Wildlife, or the national, we call it NIFWIF, have for this grant, and we can, we can do this. So we applied for the grant. We got it. It was $400,000. That was our first grant. Um, it targeted CRP land that's coming out of production here in Phillips Valley in Blaine County and we were going to do reseeding on those uh, plowed up acres that were coming out, um, drilling wells, putting in pipelines and fencing projects, either fence modifications or all new fencing. And that was the criteria, the first grant. So trying to get the word out into the community with what we were doing was one of the bigger challenges we faced and, and still face. Um, it's getting easier. Uh, the more we do, the easier it gets, I think. And after that first grant, we got three more grants. And I think we have a fourth and fifth one now, or we do have a fourth and fifth one. And I think we're in the process of applying for another one. So in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, this landscape experienced layers of degradation from harsh weather and intensive farming practices. 
One of RSA's goals is to restore native grasslands in this region, which is the reseeding projects that Sheila's talking about. Through these grants that she mentions, since 2017, RSA has improved over 50,000 acres of native grasslands, worked with over 40 ranches, and put more than $3.3 million back into the local economy. We've helped beginning ranchers. We've helped ranchers that have been established for years. But we are getting acres put back into grasslands. So we have intact grasslands in the northern Great Plains. It's really exciting because a lot of it's tied with bird monitoring and um, soil monitoring and fencing modifications. So it impacts wildlife. There's just all kinds of things that it's doing. I, I, I get excited every time we get another grant. It's like, yes, we're gonna get some more acres done here and we're gonna help another rancher be able to utilize a field that probably doesn't have any water on it and it can be incorporated in his whole grazing system. And the overall impact on that ranch is, is huge when you can do that. I, it's just exciting. We put money into it, uh, RSA out of our grant, but the collaboration comes in with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and their partners program. They kick in money, matching money to into these grants. Uh, be, we've worked with BLM. They have some money that we can tap into. Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, um, Pheasants Forever, uh, Ducks Unlimited. We've, we've got all kinds of partners, NRCS, all kinds of partners sitting at the table at these meetings now. And when we first started, we had three or four. Now, every time I go to a meeting, there's a new group that showed up and it's like, wow, look at look what we're bringing to the table and look at what's going on here. You know, they're, they're, they have to buy into our set of little rules that we have for our organization. Um, they're not hard. It's just like leave your leave your egos at the door, come in and sit and work with this. And so, you know, a rancher might ask for a well to be drilled and pipelines and a fence. Maybe we drill the well, and I say we as RSA. Fish, Wildlife, and Parks might do a fence modification for them. Uh, Pheasants Forever might have money that comes in and helps do does something else. World Wildlife Fund is part of it. They've kicked in money for reseeding. We have a coordinator now, Martin Townsend. Um, he does a great job with talking to all these different organizations and saying, you know, what can you do on this project for us? Or NRCS has a project coming up and they'll come to us and say, hey, we're doing this project, but we know you guys have money. Can you fund this little portion? And makes our dollars for Rancher Stewardship Alliance go farther by utilizing all the other funding. Um, the landowner puts in a match. Uh, it, his match is not necessarily dollars unless that's what he wants to contribute to the project. A lot of time he does the work. Uh, he'll install all the fence and that will be his contribution in matching dollars to the dollars we kick in. And so that's kind of how that whole conservation program works. The other portions of RSA are about as exciting as the conservation. Um, the education to me is really important. We just had Nicole Masters here and we partnered with Winnet Aces and uh, the conservation district. So she did a four day circuit through Winnet, two days there and down to Circle and, and here in Malta. And so that was another collaborative education with 
other entities to bring somebody that's well known that none of us probably could afford to do um, on our own, but we impacted a lot of people through that project. And we got a rural resilience feature now where we're doing book clubs, where we have a book book club in the wintertime. We read a book and get together and discuss it once a month. And um, I don't know, we just have all kinds of exciting things going on. Most of the time I can't keep up anymore. <laughs> I'm off of the board, so it's like, a <laughs> and staffing, I mean, we got some great staff now. I mean, even then, but I guess what I, what I should have started out with is RSA is a rancher-led organization. It's, it's led by ranchers, boots-on-the-ground ranchers. I think that's been the biggest success in getting this going and keeping it going is ranchers leading ranchers. We know what's going on on the ground, and so I think other ranchers coming in, you know, they might be a little skeptical about what we're doing, but if we can show them, uh, we have a, a greater success. And just on that, just as a message for folks who do live in the area, um, who don't know about RSA's work already, and they hear this and say, I want to be a part of that. Um, does it work in a way of like, look on our site and call us up kind of thing? Or is it like show up at a meeting? How, you know, if, if they want assistance on their own operation through RSA, how does that work? If anybody wants any information about RSA, we do have a website. It's ranchstewards.org. And um, we have an office in Malta. We have staff that's staffed there now. Just give the office a call and uh, we can set you up with information and somebody can come out and visit with you and get you started on a project or, or at least visit about the project and you know what dollars we might have. I asked Sheila about the realistic challenges of bringing a variety of stakeholders together, as is done at RSA meetings and in their programs. She says how they had to establish parameters for entities to become partners as well as parameters for how to make the conservation programs accessible to ranchers. So our conservation committee works in a way that when we first started it, we knew we had to have some kind of criteria to belong, and we needed some kind of format to figure out how to be fair to the ranchers that were applying for the money. We didn't want it to be hard. We didn't want a lot of paperwork because that was one of the biggest things that as ranchers we heard was it, a lot of times you go to get money and you've got 10 pages or 15 pages of things you have to fill out and you don't have time to do it. And you have to jump through all these hoops and we didn't want to make it hard. We, we have enough challenges on the outside without doing that. So we came up with a, a list of things that First of all, I mentioned leaving your ego at the door when you come in. So anybody that comes in signs a, a two or three forms saying that they're going to leave their ego at the door. They're going to bring things to the table, and we're going to all try to be fair and concerned about the projects. No organization gets any gain. We're all here for the rancher and what's going on. The other criteria for the rancher was we needed a set of forms that was simple. So we have a two-page form that the coordinator sits down with the rancher and we fill out. We go through what they are expecting us to provide them, whether it's reseeding or uh, putting in new fences or drilling wells or pipeline, uh, according to these grants. And then we, we have 
criteria for hired grassland landscapes, and it's all based on a point system. So there are several things, uh, whether they're in a uh, area where there's a lot of migration of wildlife, they get points for that. It's it's a short one-page thing on the front. The back is, you know, do you want to showcase your project so we can talk about this and tell other people, tell other ranches. Maybe we can get this started in another area someplace or somebody else wants to. So we, we want to be able to showcase those projects that we've done so that people can see. And if they do, great. If they don't, we're okay with that too. It gives them extra bonus points. And then we rank those points in a point system. We have a ranking chart on each of our grants. And depending on how many uh, applications we have, we usually have been able to cover all of these. Um, they might just be ranked down lower, but we've still been able to do a project for people. It's simple. The challenges that we've seen early on uh, never really materialized. I think everybody knew that we were, we wanted to do good things in this area. We wanted to help the ranchers and they were all on board with doing that. They needed RSA to be that conduit. So if they were gonna come to our meetings, we knew that we needed to bring everybody together. And three years ago, I guess it was, we actually brought a gal in from back east. All the representatives from the different organizations, we met and we had a two-day workshop with her, figuring out our how we operate. The workshop that Sheila's talking about here is the DISC Behavioral Assessment which tells you features about your own personality traits, your strengths, and your methods of approach. We all met in a room and we figured out where each of us fell on that chart. And so high D people work at a really high level. They work fast, they work quick. They don't want a lot of details. They just want to go in, get the, get the facts, get it done, and move on. And then we have other people sitting in the room that are C's and they're like, well, you know, I kind of I need more information, and they're more the type that are not going to say much in a meeting. And we learned about everybody's personalities, and that was a real eye opener for all of us as to how we work together while we're sitting in that conservation committee room. As a chairman, I chaired that committee one year, and um, I always thought back every meeting how everybody in that room worked together, even if they were on a Zoom call or on a Zoom meeting or whatever. It's like, okay, that person's not saying anything. So then I would target that person and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? You haven't said anything. You, you probably have an opinion. Let's hear it, you know. So we, didn't, we try not to leave anybody out of the, the conversation. You know, a lot of that's back and forth. Uh, the ranchers try to keep the... NGOs or the government organizations accountable, you know, it's like, well, this doesn't really work on a ranch. I know that's what you see, but that's not, we don't see it that way. And, you know, how can we work towards that common ground? You know, we haven't had a lot of conflict in a room ever. Um, everybody comes in and voices their opinion and we work towards, you know, we might go back and forth. Well, let's not do it this way, but let's try this or Somebody else throws something in and it's like, in the end, we're all going, oh, hey, well, this is going to work. Let's do it, you know. We take a little of each or throw out this. And, you know, we have a lot of discussions that are really beneficial. I mean, 
whether they work or not. And a lot of times we table things and the organizations work on them outside the committee meeting and bring something back to the committee. And the committee um, hashes it over and then we pass it out of the committee if we want to work on that project. Um, everybody has a vote. Each organization has one vote. And um, then it goes to the main RSA board of directors and they get to hear what the project is and that it was voted out of committee and they get they get the final say as to whether the rancher gets the money. So that's that's kind of how the process works in a nutshell. I can't say as I've ever been at a meeting where we had any big disagreements to where somebody got up and walked out. And I think that's because of the the main set of rules that we have that they sign off when they come in. It's like leave here you go at the door. We're here to do things for the common good of the ranchers in this area, and how can we make that work? Here, Sheila references the realistic hesitations that many residents had when some of the large national or even international scale conservation organizations began coming to RSA meetings. But both her and Bud underscore that the key component to creating these relationships in an honest, trusting way is communication and open lines of dialogue which they have seen take place with the organizations that RSA works with. You know, it took us a while to sit in the same room with them and, and not be skeptical of what they wanted from us or wanted us to do that we and wife. You know, a lot of us are working with them now. Um, they're obviously sitting in on our conservation committee meetings and, you know, we're getting things done. More, more has come out of the collaboration and the meeting them halfway or have them meet us halfway or whatever and have them learn from us versus saying, no, you're not welcome here. Bud is also involved with the Island Mountain Development Group's Agricultural Committee. Island Mountain is an indigenous-led entity dedicated to creating a self-sustaining economy and improved well-being for members of the Aani or Grovant and Nakoda or Assiniboine nations. They've created over 300 jobs within the reservation in a variety of sectors and work in partnership with tribes and entities in other states. Island Mountain Development provides loan opportunities to 50 million people. Since they have started, they have diversified. They own a housing building company now. Uh, they own property in Harlem, Montana. Uh, they own property in Billings, Montana. They're building houses. Diversification of Island Mountain Development, they've been very successful. They, they have communicated with other tribes in other states, so they're sharing information, and it's pretty exciting to be part of that organization. Bud shares about being on Island Mountain's Agriculture Committee specifically work that they're doing to create opportunities and realistic challenges of where he sees changes can be made. The Ag Committee is something that's really been needed uh, on the reservation. You know, that we hope we can provide more information to the Fort Belknap Councils, which changes every year usually. We are a good reservation, uh, 700,000 acres. We bring up different uh, projects to the head of Island Mountain, and then they bring projects to us to study. 
Uh, we studied hemp extensively, and at this particular time, we're considering slaughter plant, but we also have issues with uh, a labor force. Uh, there's technology out there in today's world that can be used to make things better for operators. Our grazing ordinance needs to be updated. It's very hard for a young rancher to get started on Fort Belknap because of BIA regulations and our old constitution. You really need a home base if you want to be a rancher with livestock. Bud speaks here about a specific grant that the Agricultural Committee applied for. Island Mountain Development's uh, chairman chose to give us an opportunity to get the Indian Country Economic Development Grant from the state of Montana. Uh, with that grant, we expanded our corral system. We have anywhere from a half a dozen to uh, 16 or 18 producers that use that corral system a couple times a year. We uh, let the forage clubs use the corral system for their forage uh, livestock to weigh them, for example. Uh, we have a community uh, bull test, uh, usually in April or early May, where producers can uh, both off and on the reservation can bring their bulls to the corral. Bud speaks about some of the other projects that the Island Mountain Ag Committee is looking into developing. We've looked at a lot of different things, a different kind of manufacturing uh, plants, you know, whether it be a, a seed processing or a fencing organization, just uh, a lot of different things, possibly land purchasing. One thing that I failed to mention, they're the largest employer on Fort Belknap. Uh, you know, they have 200 plus employees now. Uh, and then they have employees in Billings, Montana also uh, because they set up an office uh, system that in Billings. You know, they understand that there are changes and that changes need to be made, you know, and that with the, with the two tribes that are here, the membership is approximately 8,000 people, you know. There's a lot of intelligent people that come from this reservation, but they don't stay here because of the lack of opportunity. So they move on to other places and other states, you know. The government is starting to maybe be more uh, supporting as far as understanding uh, Indian people. Uh, and Indian history has really not been made available to people through the school system. The Ag Committee has a mission statement also, you know. Uh, the projects that we want to develop are for-profit projects. We want to develop different projects that will maybe employ more people here and also educate, you know, as far as agriculture, because Montana is, is, is agriculture, Fort Belknap is agriculture. The three of us that are on the Ag Committee, we're not on that Ag Committee to make things specifically for ourselves. We want to develop things that will help the community and help the reservation as a whole. Uh... In the summer of 2021, the western U.S. suffered a severe drought, a trend that as of June of this year 
is still holding on, despite regions of Montana receiving high levels of rain and snowpack. Much of the state is still in some level of drought, with the highest severity being in the north-central region of the state. I asked Bud last September about what this drought meant for producers in Montana specifically. You know, this whole valley produces hay, and uh, there was no, no hay produced in this valley this year. You know, the, the drought started last year, the grasshoppers came last year, the grasshoppers were here this year, and the grasshoppers are gonna be he here next year. This drought is throughout Western United States, and it's gonna trickle down to the people in town. Everybody's gonna feel this drought, if, and, and I believe that they're feeling it already. And to bring those cattle back into Montana, it's gonna cost twice as much. Uh, but with the proper management and uh, the right attitude, we'll all be sustainable. As the season continued, hay prices proved to reflect the lack of production. Prices for hay skyrocketed and put added financial pressures on ranchers, combined with lack of grass growth in their own pastures and other market factors, many producers were forced to sell off higher amounts of their herds, selling them earlier than they typically would, which results in a huge financial loss. And for some, this pressure on an already thin profit margin meant that they went out of business completely and had to sell their ranches. Last summer, most of Montana was also blanketed in wildfire smoke, either from local fires or fires as far as the West Coast. Our original plan to come speak with the Walshes in August of last summer, three weeks before we ended up speaking with them here, was postponed because that same day a wildfire started in the tree line just above their ranch, putting them on evacuation notice and causing the evacuation of the community of Zortman. I asked Sheila about that experience here. Well, with the drought in the West, uh, the fires have been substantial all across the West this year, including Montana. And we've had so many of them that the smoke just lays heavy in the valleys. And I mean, it impacted the days because it was hot. I mean, extremely hot, um, creates extremely hot fires. So there was a lot more smoke and there was a lot of days when you couldn't even see the mountains. Um, smoke could roll in from the West and it would just stay here for three or four days and then we might get a break and then it'd be back. But these fires are all created from the dryness and no rain. You know, a lot of them are man-made, so uh, people don't realize the impact that they're leaving out here and the things that they're doing to create all of this. It's, it's really devastating because you see the mountains burn up, but if the mountains were managed at a higher level than what they're being managed now, um, whether it's cattle grazing or grazing sheep or goats, um, it reduces the fuel loads. So I think that would be a benefit if our state and national would, uh, organizations would step up and let us manage these forests a lot better. We'd have a lot less of this. Well, so when the fire started up there in the mountain uh, that day at noon, we knew that it was going and we knew it was going to be ugly, probably. Uh, we didn't realize the impact that it was going to make so quickly because the wind came up with it. 
About three o'clock, my husband left with our hired man in the fire units and headed over to Lodgepole. We have a friend that lives over there on a ranch and we knew that that fire was headed to him. It traveled 15 miles in about three and a half hours and that's across rugged terrain. So the wind was just fueling that fire and, and being so hot and dry. And they were able to save his place over there. Um, about four o'clock, we got the notice here in, in Zortman that uh, we were gonna be on pre-evacuation orders because the wind wasn't dying down and they didn't know if they could stop it when it got over on this side of the mountain. Of course, it was gonna get dark and the slurry bombers weren't gonna be able to fly after dark. And um, it was a little nerve wracking for quite a while. I was packing things and my husband was fighting fire and I didn't know where he was at for sure and what was going on over there until about nine o'clock that night and he said that uh, the wind had quit over there but it hadn't here and I could see the glow of the fire yet um, but we got lucky the wind died down and the next day uh, we started getting some rain showers and uh, for three days in a row we got rain and they were able to get fire lines around everything and get it contained in there so it was a blessing had everybody packing things in Zortman and bringing them down here and staging down here at our place so that it was easier to get it out at a moment's notice because we figured if it came out of the mountain, we'd be able to stop it here um, before it started racing across the prairie. So, it, you know, and these communities are great because I had people, friends and neighbors 60 miles to the east and south of us calling and saying, call us we'll be there in an hour and you know things get bad we're, we're on our way if you need us so that's that's what these rural communities are about is, is the people that live here and care and and drop everything they're doing to come help you on a moment's notice so yeah it's a great place to live i asked both bud and sheila if they had any final messages that they want to get out there for the public what they see working, or what they hope to see more of going forward for the health of land and communities. Well, I've seen the benefits of the Matador Grass Bank, and I also understand that you need to have people on the land to keep the land healthy. I hope that the, the future will bring more things together, like the Matador Grazing Association, because the circle of life and progress changes, you know. So if you want to be a young rancher in today's world, you don't have to own an acre of ground. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of young producers that misunderstand that. They think that they have to own a ranch. Uh, so they're going to tie themselves down to a lifetime of debit, you know, and there's some benefits from, from working for absentee owners, you know because most absentee owners want you to take care of the land. They want you to take care of the, the soil and the plants. They're maybe not interested in huge profits because there's not often huge profits in agriculture. In my case, it's, it's been a lifetime of uh, no salary. My profit is at the end, you know, because I did develop a sustainable ranch. And now to Sheila. It just gives you great hope that these, the younger generations that are coming up are going to have a chance. And 
what we're doing is going to make a difference. I just see that happening every day now. It, it just gives me a lot of hope that these ranchers are going to be here 100 years from now. We've made an impact now to keep that going for the future. That's what I see. The collaboration with all of this, these organizations working together and working together is going to keep us viable and and still have families here that are going to raise their families here that's what we want to see i follow up by asking sheila about this concept of a landscape scale approach of looking past fence lines and communicating and working with neighboring areas that share the same ecosystem or on a social level of working with others that share the same challenges and potential solutions when you start looking at a wider broader landscape whether it's your neighbors or the next county. You're looking at all the grasslands and how we can impact a difference on different soils and different types of areas. If we're doing good things all across this landscape in the Northern Great Plains, then not only are we impacting that soil health and and the broader landscapes and the birds and the wildlife, but we're impacting us as humans. It starts with our soil and works up and it just keeps us all connected that way. I want to see us all to succeed, whether it's here in Phillips County or Montana or South Dakota or Nebraska. We all have the same challenges, just a different area. Working together, whether we're working with people in Nebraska trying to figure out what's going on there can help but benefit us up here. Um, so that connectedness helps us all learn and grow and keep the next generation coming up so they're connected to it too. Thank you so much to Bud and Sheila Walsh and Charlie Messerly for speaking with us. You can learn more about the Nature Conservancy's Matador Ranch, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, and Island Mountain Development Group at the links in this episode's show notes. They're also all active on social media. We encourage you to check out the other three episodes which hear from other voices in the Central Montana Plains region. Also check out lifeintheland.org where you can find the film featuring these voices from Central Montana, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you to Cassie Heron for production assistance in the field and to Katie Sprout for editing assistance. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of several Plains tribes who interacted with and stewarded all elements of these lands for thousands of years and continue this stewardship today on and off tribal reservation lands. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, 
Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.